Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finneran, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. This next hour, we study the inspired and true Word of God and the Word made flesh, who is love, and His love is manifested by being the final sacrifice for you. And His love is poured out into our hearts in 1 Kings chapter 8. The temple is built, the palace is built, now we need, evidently, an interior designer. Today we hear of all the temple furnishings that go into this most holy of places. And we can look at that and think, well, that's simple. They just kind of make it look nice. But does it point us to something more? Obviously back to the Lord, which is our goal every morning here on KFUO, that we're pointed back to Christ because the gifts are ready, ready for you. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Thy Strong Word is generously underwritten by our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. Giving us God's strong word today, we have with us Pastor Timothy Sims of St. John Lutheran Church in Chester, Illinois. Pastor Sims, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thanks for having me. Glad to be with you. Pastor Sims, uh, happy Easter, first of all. Christ is risen. <laughs> risen indeed. Hallelujah. So, Pastor Hallelujah. Sims, we know each other, actually, um, just for full, uh, what do you call it, um, full disclosure to everybody. Yeah, Pastor Sims yeah. is God, father to my son. And uh, so we know each other just a little bit. What do you think of that? <laughs> oh, what a privilege. Always a humbling <laughs> privilege. Uh, kind of like being uh, a pastor and a husband and father, being a baptismal sponsor is also one of those things that always has you saying, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> anyways, privilege, but it's hard to live up to. So. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Trying every day. But anyway, so we know each other, obviously. And but... Elias is taller than me, too. That's a difficult thing. Yeah, you know what? I think a good foot taller than me, probably. I think all my kids are definitely taller than <laughs> Pastor Sims. So we'll just put it yeah, as that. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, but we we know each other, but Pastor, the people here probably don't. I believe this is your first time on Thy Strong Word. Am I correct? Correct. Yeah. So as we have new listeners all the time, can you tell us a few things about yourself and also the work of the saints at St. John's in Chester? Sure. I am a husband to Carrie, father to Joshua, Isaac, and Reagan, and I have the privilege of being a pastor to the, to the saints here at uh, St. John Lutheran Church and School in Chester, Illinois, and uh, it's a great privilege, great, great place to live. We are really like being here, and uh, as with any parish setting, there are many joys, many challenges, and, and struggles at the same time. It's, it's great to be here, and I am glad to be, it's a privilege to be the pastor for the people here at St. John. Wonderful. Now, Chester has other distinctions that people might know about, or maybe they don't know about, but it's something that is uh, well known, um, that someone came from Chester that wrote some kind of comics or something along those lines. <laughs> Popeye, Popeye the Sailor <laughs> Man, doot, doot. Yeah, he's uh he, the the curator of that and the, the, the person who came up with that was right here in Chester, and Popeye himself uh, was apparently uh, uh, inspired by a real person here in Chester, Illinois. So, yeah, we're, we're somewhat famous here uh, for that. 
Well, there you go. Not only can you go to Chester to hear the pure proclamation of law and gospel and the forgiveness of your sins, but also you can go to the birthplace of Popeye. I think that is just as exciting, (laughs) maybe just a little bit less exciting than the rest I just mentioned. So anyways, but Pastor, it is a it is a joy to have you in with us this morning as we are about to dig into First Kings chapter seven. And if you can, um, you know what? I made a mistake. I said First Kings chapter eight in the introduction. We are in First Kings chapter seven. How did I mess that up? I'm not sure. But as we as we know, I make mistakes. Can you begin and ask the Lord's blessing on our time in prayer? Can you do that for us, Pastor? Be glad to. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, humble our hearts and speak to us through your word that through the power of your Holy Spirit, we may believe and trust in Jesus Christ. In his holy name. Amen. Amen. Pastor, we come to chapter 7 of 1 Kings, and as we look, we see the temple built, we see the palace being brought together, we see obviously throughout the whole first six or seven and a half chapters, many um, contextual background things that we could highlight, but what do you want to highlight as we look at our verses this morning? Well, you know, you just pointed out what's happened leading up to this point, that's always an important thing. Uh, there may be some things that kind of prove to be redundant. We don't necessarily have to spend a bunch of time on those things. But now we're going to uh, look at some things that may be uh, considered to be a little insignificant, like you mentioned, but what's the big deal about furnishings and tools? There's tools mentioned in here uh, wow. as well. Um, what we might uh, call today the vessels, okay, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, how in the world are these significant uh, in the temple? And uh, how do they somehow point us to what God's doing in and through the temple, and thereby also then uh, living in the era of Christ in the New Testament? uh, How might these things point us to who Jesus is for us today in our own worship life? And what's interesting, it's been very, it's been a very fruitful time to be be able to go through these verses because I remember taking an Old Testament class, I believe it was in college, and you're kind of, you're trying to plow through the whole Old Testament in a semester, which is just crazy, <laughs> and and it's it's a reminder right. to us that. You just don't read the Bible and read it through once and say, okay, I'm good. You know, it's a lifelong endeavor of digging into the scriptures and 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 being pointed back to our Lord. And I remember specifically in this Old Testament class is that the professor kind of got to this point and he's like, well, go to chapter three and then skip all that temple stuff and let's move on to, you know, the better <laughs> stuff and later on in the Kings. And, and I don't blame him for that because you're trying to go through the whole Old Testament in a semester. That's yeah. crazy. That's crazy. But it is something that's yeah. been very fruitful for me to read these and very slowly go through it because although it can be redundant, like you said, it does point us to something greater. Any, any last thoughts on the background as we look at the words today? Indeed. And I, uh, I agree with that, and I know I've read through First Kings. I will admit, I in in choosing uh, this particular uh, day to be on the program, or or maybe better said, if I'm going to be honest, <laughs> having other days eliminated mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> and chosen by other people, I thought, you know what? Maybe I just need to challenge myself uh, with this text on the temple furnishings. Because to be honest, I uh, I will not tell you that I was 
really well versed in First Kings uh, at all, the whole the whole book, let alone chapter seven specifically. And I thought, you know what? If that's true as a pastor, it's about time I learned it a little better. So that's right. That's <laughs> so right. I'm glad, well, glad to have done that. So. <laughs> well, as I as you are the Godfather to my son, I am glad that you're being you're challenging yourself in your spiritual life. This is good. So, anyways, <laughs> we'll move on. Let's as we dig into the scriptures this morning. We are reading from First uh, Kings chapter seven, beginning at verse thirteen. And a reminder to our listeners: we are reading from the English Standard Version of the Holy Scriptures, and we'll begin just with, just with verses thirteen and fourteen. And King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow in the tribe of Naphtali. And his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. And he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze. He came to King Solomon and did all his work. Now, we've heard this name before, but I this doesn't seem to be the same Hiram that we heard of before this point. Any? Did you find anything on this Hiram? Yeah, uh, and I will say uh, there's all kinds of resources out there. Uh, a great resource for me turned out to be uh, Dr. Meyer's uh, commentary on this, which is just golden, kind of sticking with mm-hmm. the theme of the decorations, mm. I guess. That's right. That's right. And, uh, but... Uh, the the thing that's mentioned you never you never know what the commonality of a name might be uh you know there are some scholars who say that the name Jesus was actually one of the most common names given to males born in Palestine uh at the time of Christ hmm. uh and uh and yet there's only one Jesus right uh right. but uh and so we've seen that even through archaeological digs well we don't know how many hirams there may have been in the Phoenician area uh, but we're we're very certain looking at this that this is not the king, but this is rather a skilled worker, uh, someone who's from that area, and uh, and is being called for uh, to do some work. And uh, maybe he's done other work before, and he's being called back, or maybe he's simply with the relationship that Solomon had uh, with the king of Tyre there that uh, he knows that this guy's the guy you want for the job, right? And uh, and so that seems to be the case here. Well, and it, it's interesting to me how much they go to that Phoenician area to find people to do the work. One, the workers that we see in chapter five. We also hear of no one could cut timber like the Sidonians. It says in chapter five right. as well. Yeah, <laughs> those are kind of this great funny... lumberjackers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. This is why you know if you want to get iron ore, we know in Minnesota you go up northern Minnesota. You know and if you want, uh-huh. uh, what else? What else do we do here in Minnesota? Well, we make maple syrup. I mean, if you want it, you have to go in certain parts of Minnesota. But what about Illinois? I mean, if you want something done well, what part? What do we? What do we get from Illinois? What do you think? Well, there's lots of things they do. There's some mining down here, and okay, okay. Uh, there's yeah. all kinds of things. We have some food production, and uh, nice. and we have, you know, it's not necessarily something that. Everybody uh, wants in their backyard, but it works quite well here in, in southern Illinois. And ministry has been done there as well. And that is we have uh, some prisons. Oh, and, uh, nice. Good job. And yeah. And, yeah. So some... and so there's all kind, and there's lots of good farming uh, and, and that sort of thing, too. And actually something that could play into this and maybe I'll mention later, we actually have uh, a somewhat well-known church artisan at our own congregation who does painting and gold laying and that kind of thing. 
Oh, interesting. Uh, and so, yeah. Yeah. All kinds of Hold on to that. Yeah. Hold on to that. Wow. Now yeah. we know. Okay. All right. I sure will. I thought, yeah. you, I thought you were just going to say Chicago <laughs> hot dogs, but uh, okay, that worked. The rest of those things well, work you know, too. I thought, I'll be that's honest all you had. with you. A lot of people down here, a lot of people down here don't necessarily want to associate with Chicago. <laughs> that's probably yeah, true. Yeah. So, the, Southern Illinois is not uh, Chicago. Okay. Oh, that's fair so enough. I, I had fair to learn enough. that very quickly. So, yeah. <laughs> so, there as we look at our text. amazing things in here. Right, there is. And and here he finds Hiram. We we know that he's a skilled worker, that he needs bronze. Um, he's going to this land to get something in bronze, and, and he's very open to bringing in outside help. Other thoughts on yeah. verses 13 and 14? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I loved uh, – there, there's some debate whether uh, this guy is half Jewish or whole Jewish – uh, we know he's mm-hmm. not not living in place where he should if he's a Jew, though, at this point, right? Uh, he, sure. At least he's not near the holy land of, of Jerusalem, if you will. And, uh, and some people see that significant. Others maybe not so much. Uh, but one thing, one thing is clear. Hiram is actually a Phoenician or Tyrian name, okay? And mm-hmm. so uh, some people might actually have some, some issues uh, with the fact that that he's doing this work, and I'm going to get to a discussion you had with another pastor earlier in the week that I think is is quite significant, actually. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, you, whenever you're looking at a text, right, you look forward and backward to see how the whole salvation story unfolds, and, mm-hmm. and you even actually see this already, just in this. You know, way back in Exodus 31, uh, there's a description given of a guy by the name of Bazalel. Mm-hmm. who Yahweh appoints to, for the building of the tabernacle. And the words that are used here to describe Hiram basically are the same words. Uh, and so you've already had this done in the Old Testament. Now you have that here. Then maybe you look forward, not an artisan, so to speak, but you've got Timothy, right, who is mm-hmm. uh, seems to be of mixed descent, and yet he's going to be called to the higher calling of being a pastor, and God calls him to do that, and the fact that his mom's a Jew and his dad's a Gentile doesn't matter, right? The Lord's going to use him uh, as a tool in his hands. I love the discussion that you had with Pastor Lakomsky mm-hmm. earlier in the week, and I think you made a reference to, you know, if I have a surgeon, I don't really care. I want the best surgeon. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really matter to me so much whether uh, he's an Orthodox Lutheran or not. I don't know. <laughs> Those are my words, I think. Um, but, uh, you know, what? Uh, this is just a little pet peeve of mine. It just kind of comes into play here for me. Uh, forgive me if I go off on a bit of a tangent, but I think one of the dumbest ideas we've ever come up with is the Christian business directory. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, it, I'm only going to call a Christian to come in and work on my plumbing at home, you know, or something like that. As a, as right. if, if a Hindu comes in and works on my toilet, it's somehow going to be unclean. You know? Right. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. think that's just kind of a silly notion for multiple reasons. Uh, not only could there be someone who's better, who's maybe not a Christian, but if you only uh, use the businesses you're going to associate with as if you're in some sort of monastic order and you close yourself off to the rest of the world, what opportunity do you have to share Christ with other people? Right. Uh, you right. know, all the conversations that can take place. Oh, yeah, what do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. Oh, 
Okay. You know, and uh, hey, if that other person is already a Christian, great. But it's not great because I have a Christian working on my, my plumbing. It's great because they're in the kingdom of God. But if they're not, and they come in and they witness the things that are hanging in my house or the conversations that we can have, uh, maybe there's an opportunity there for them to be introduced to Christ. And that's the kind of thing we should welcome as opposed to, you know, imagine if someone said, why are you having this Phoenician guy come and do this? Can't you have someone who's maybe a little more pure, a Jew from Jerusalem here, you know, do this? Well, no. And uh, we're already being shown that this will be a house of prayer for all peoples. You know, uh, coming up in a, in another week or so, when you do First Kings 8 and get into verse 41, part of Solomon's prayer is going to be foreigners coming to pray to the one true God. That's true. Uh, That's true. And so it's a beautiful thing when someone comes from afar and maybe someone who's not of the Abrahamic line is brought to see the glory of God and to be introduced to who the one true God is. It's a beautiful thing, not a bad thing. And that's very helpful for us to think, because we we can segment it and say, Old Testament people, no evangelism. There was no desire to to <laughs> tell people and point people to the Lord. New Testament, all evangelism, you know, and, and it's clearly not that easy to look. And I, I especially love how you're putting that together and how it applies to us as Pastor Lakomsky did as well, because it, it is it is so important for us to realize where has God placed us um, and and what are the, the ways of how we are to function as Christians, meaning that um, you need your plumbing fixed, you get a plumber. You know, you don't worry necessarily about their faith, but if the opportunity comes, first Peter chapter three, you know, to to give yeah. a to give a witness, you know, to um, to be able to be prepared to to give the hope that we have within us. And and that's something that was happening then too, because they knew there was hope. They knew there was hope in the Lord Yahweh and the promise of the Messiah still yet to come. So I'm kind of excited to get to the bronze part here. Any last thoughts before we move on? Uh, no, I'm, I'm ready whenever you want. <laughs> All right, let's get to it. 15 through 21, as we look at the two pillars. He cast two pillars of bronze. 18 cubits was the height of one pillar, and a line of 12 cubits measured its circumference. It was hollow, and its thickness was four fingers. The second pillar was the same. He also made two capitals of cast bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. The height of the one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. And there were lattices of checker work uh, latices with checker work with wreaths of chain work for the capitals on the top of the pillars, a latice for the one capital, a latice for the other capital. Likewise, he made pomegranates in two rows around the one lattice work to cover the capital that was on the top of the pillar. And he did the same with the other capital. Now, the capitals that were on tops of the pillars in the vestibule were of lily work, four cubits. The capitals were on the two pillars and also above the rounded projection, which was beside the the lattice work. There were 200 pomegranates in two rows all around, and so with the other capital. He set up the pillars of the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the south and called its name Jachin, and he set up the pillar in the north and called his name Boaz. And on the tops of the pillars was lily work. Thus, the work of the pillars was finished. Um, 
a lot of capitals. I feel like I'm talking about the 50 states and talking about capitals here, but they're talking about <laughs> something else. So it talks about two pillars and what needs to go into all of this. So what did you find on these verses? Well, there, there's some interesting talk about whether um, these were just freestanding things or if they were actually structural. Or today we would say, were they load-bearing? Mm-hmm. Uh, did they have anything they were holding up? And uh, for the most part, it's believed that they were freestanding. There's some others, but not really because of what we see in this story or, or in the scriptures, but because of archaeological digs, not of this temple, but mm-hmm. of other places, has some people thinking, oh, maybe they were load-bearing. But uh, uh, it really looks as though these are not load-bearing. And I think uh, Dr. Meyer, for example, is, is on board with that. So then maybe the question would be, if they're not load-bearing, what in the world are they there for? Because right. they're big pillars. Why would you just put two pillars right out front? Um, and one one argument for that, that that was the case, is that the temple and the portico, as you've gone through this uh, particular section of First Kings, they're already built. Right. So now these are these are added. Okay, so if they'd have been load-bearing, stuff would have fallen apart already. That's true. Right? That's true, yeah. Um, now, I would say, really, either way, there are very specific details given here. So the question might be, so what's the point? Because they could have just put, in two, put two poles and not worried about it. They didn't have to name them, and they didn't right. have to put all these things on them, right? Oh, yeah. So they were even if they were uh, architectural or functional, there's really uh, there may still be a better point. Um, maybe they represent or advertise what's inside, right? Before mm-hmm. you go in, and the names certainly play a role. Uh, Jacob. Uh, means something along the lines of he or Yahweh will establish, and Boaz means in him is strength. Okay, so you could look at those two things separately. They certainly could have some significance. Yahweh will establish, in him is strength. Uh, Dr. Meyer does a great job of pointing out that if you put the two statements actually together, the way they could work grammatically, they could read this way. Yahweh establishes with a strong one. So at this point, it turns into something that's messianic. Hmm. Uh, And it seems already just with the names of the two pillars outside the temple, we're already being pointed to a Messiah, who, of course, we know will, will be Jesus Christ. That, wow. You know, I, I remember reading that with Dr. Meyer as well, and you kind of, for a while, kind of running around in circles trying to figure out exactly what he was saying, but there definitely is that feeling of those names, because whenever you have names in the Old Testament, it usually has a bigger meaning. You know, like you well, you have more of a clear name that was obviously Timothy points to the Bible, um, so forth. And uh, Brady, well, it doesn't have much besides Tom Brady. Um, there's not a lot of meaning behind it nowadays besides Tom Brady. Um, but, uh, you know, you look at these names and they have more meaning to it. So people in those days would understand that when we walk here, 
that those names mean something much like names today do us so we do associate it with other things that have more meanings we just don't quite have the depth of those meanings so definitely looking sure. when you're going in there you're not just going into any place you're you're seeing the symbolism that we often will see even in some of our older churches that have more symbolism as you walk through the doors and in the sanctuary itself other other thoughts Indeed. on those uh, on the on the bronze pillars and the front of the temple yeah, and just the way they're they're decorated. Of course, we got the pomegranates and the lilies again. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know. I'm not sure actually what you may have talked about already regarding pomegranates and that sort of thing. We actually, uh, I, I do foods of the Bible every once in a while with uh, the kids at school, and uh, we did that this past week. Of course, in COVID, I was like, can I even do that this year? But as long as I had stuff packaged from the store, it was all right. So we tried some pomegranates and some other things. Uh, the, boy, those were uh, not just a prominent fruit for them, but they were a symbol of prosperity, of fruitfulness, mm. of God's providence and care, uh, his blessing. Uh, and if you take that in combination with the name of the pillars, these things on the pillars, and the fact that this was oriented facing east, like the entrance to the sure. Garden of Eden— Sure. Yeah. Suddenly we're we're getting a glimpse of something even greater going on here. Okay, I mentioned that it, this is going to kind of advertise what's going on inside, or better said, who's inside. That is that is wonderful. Um, were you a, were the kids able to eat the pomegranates? Were they able to eat it or not? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the thing is, uh, it had to be packaged from the store. And the thing that's great is God made a nice little package for the pomegranates right there. There it is. (laughs) (laughs) Who would have thought? (laughs) Not to get off too far on a side note, they were a great food for the time because you had it it had its own carrying case. (laughs) And you could open it up at any time. And there are these juicy seeds that have not only... Uh, vitamins and minerals, but also a good amount of water surrounding those seeds. So in a place where good water might be a little hard to, boy, what what a refreshing and uh, life-sustaining thing. So that, you know, that all plays a role there too. And it came in its own carrying case. You just stick it in your bag or throw it in the back of your cart or whatever. <laughs> wow. What a, what a wonderful thing. And, you know, it takes so long to eat it as well. So you definitely can savor it as you, uh, as you eat it as well, but that's not important Absolutely, whatsoever yeah. to our discussion. Right. Um, so as we look at our, our text today, it speaks, you know, and this is important for us that when we, you know, that there's places that when you enter those doors, this is, hallowed ground. I mean, a lot of times when you hear a Supreme Court justice, when they get appointed, that that's one of the first things they say is that when I enter the Capitol and I go into the chambers for the Supreme Court, I know when I enter there as a lawyer um, that this makes a difference. This matters. And I think that's exactly what you're saying is that when they entered, not only was, was it beautiful, but they entered something that they know was, quote, hallowed ground, that this was ground that they were entering that wasn't the strength was not in myself, but the strength was in the Lord Yahweh and obviously the Messiah to come. Any last thoughts before we take our break? Indeed. Yeah. You know, as something to kind of project on to what we do now as Christians, you know, not only for them, but for us now. Who is there and is there anything really special going on in there? 
And the temple would have made it abundantly clear. Yahweh's in there, and there is something special going on there because he is present. And we can certainly look at that the same way, uh, although we don't necessarily have all the rules, for example, that they would have with the temple. As we set up places that are sacred spaces for worship, we can still take that same faithful idea that there's somebody here and something going on here that is different than anywhere else that I go. And that's certainly true for our churches and our sanctuaries. Look forward to talking more about that. On the other side of our break, we are studying 1 Kings chapter 7 with Pastor Timothy Sims, and we'll be right back. Friday on Issues Etc. We'll discuss critical theory with Dr. Doug Grotheis and we'll play Issues Etc. Soundbite of the Week. You'll find this week's candidates at issuesetc.org. You can vote in advance at talkback at issuesetc.org or facebook.com slash issuesetc. Listeners with the best votes will win the LPR bundle package. Issues Etc. Live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. In 1924, by the grace of God, KFUO began broadcasting the good news of Christ for you. A long part of this history is bringing you worship services to hear and receive the good gifts of God in His words. This Sunday morning, join us for services from Ascension Lutheran Church in St. Louis at 8.15 and Hope Lutheran Church in St. Anne at 10.45, as well as Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere at 9.30. Hear Christ for you in Sunday morning services on KFUO. Did you know that your individual retirement account may make the best gift to KFUO? The IRS now allows individuals 70 and a half or older to transfer their required minimum distribution directly to charity and avoid paying the associated income tax. These gifts can provide regular long-term resources to KFUO. If you have questions about making an IRA gift to KFUO, call me, Mary, at 314-996-1518. We'll send a representative out to help answer your questions and help you establish a legacy of giving to your favorite radio station, Worldwide KFUO. And welcome back. We are studying 1 Kings chapter 7 with Pastor Timothy Sims. And we've gone through only about 10 verses so far. We know there's a lot of bronze. We know there are pillars. And now we get to some more details as we look once again back to the Lord. So Pastor Sims, I just want to make sure that we're, we've covered what we need to cover before we move on. Any last thoughts of those first almost 10 verses? Well, you know, uh, there, we'll come back to some of that. And look, as we look at the significance of these last things that are included here, uh, keep in mind you, you've been mentioning bronze a lot, and uh, that's good. That's because we're still outside, right? Okay. Now, keep in mind those things as we move from here and then on to our final verses, and then we'll kind of backtrack a little bit. All right, very good. Let's keep moving on. We will read quite a few verses, uh, which would be 23 through 39. So hold on tight as we hear the word of God. Then he made the sea of cast metal 
it was round, ten cubits from brim to brim, and five cubits high, and a line of thirty cubits measured its circumference. Under its brim were gourds, for ten cubits compassing the sea all around. The gourds were two rows, cast with it was a cast, cast with it when it was cast. It stood on twelve oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea was set on them, and all the rear parts were inward. Its thickness was a handbreadth, and its brim was made like a brim of a cup, like the flower of a lily. It held two thousand baths. He also made ten stands of bronze. Each stand was four cubits long, four cubits wide, and three cubits high. This was a construction of the stands. They had panels, and the panels were set in the frames. And on the panels they were set in the frames were lions, oxen, and cherubim. On the frames both above and below the lions and oxen were there were wreaths of beveled work. Moreover, each stand had four bronze wheels and axles of bronze, and at the four corners were supports of a basin. The supports were cast with wreaths at the side of each. Its opening was within a crown that projected toward upward one cubit. Its opening was round, as a pedestal is made, a cubit and a half deep. At its opening there were carvings, and its panels were square, not round. And the four wheels were underneath the panels. The axles of the wheels were of one piece with the stands, and the height of a wheel was a cubit and a half. The wheels were made like a chariot wheel. Their axles, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all cast. There were four supports of the four corners of each stand. The supports were of one piece with the stands. And on the top of the stand there were a round band half a cubit high. And on top of the stand it stays that the panels were of one piece with it. And on the surfaces of it stays, and on its panels, he carved cherubim, lions, and palm trees, according to the space of each, with the wreaths all around. And after this manner, he made the ten stands. All of them were cast alike, the same measure and the same form. And he made the ten basins of bronze. Each basin held forty baths. Each basin measured four cubits, and there was a basin for each of the ten stands. And he set the stands, five on the south side of the house, and five on the north side of the house. And he set the sea at the southeast corner of the house. All right. Well, I'm I'm wore out. Uh, You have something to say for this, Pastor? Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. There is a lot there, and some of these details uh, seem rather just functional. Obviously, others are somewhat artistic. But, but yeah, there's there's a lot going on there. And I would say... That's one of the things that uh, is understandable why we we kind of have this tendency to just kind of skip over these things, kind of like uh, the genealogies. Mm-hmm, it's right. just like, okay, how many begats am I going to be reading here? You know, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, but if you really think about it in the salvation story and that sort of thing, there are there is significance. And you know, one thing to always consider: if God put it in the Bible, we should probably see it as being significant. Uh, right. And so there is a lot of significance here. So, yeah. So what kind of significance does this have, Pastor Sims? Well, first of all, you've got this, it is kind of a strange thing. You've got this sea 
a sea, what what's basically a giant giant bathing tub is what okay. it is. I think one place I might have read something like twenty might have just been in my in my Lutheran study Bible, twenty thousand gallons or something like that. Just a lot of water. Okay. Um if I remember that number correctly, that may or may not be. Um it says two thousand baths, twelve thousand gallons. Which is still a lot of gallons. 12,000 gallons. I was getting my twos mixed up. Yeah. Uh, That still is a lot of water. I would not want to see the bill. Yeah. Um, It's like when somebody buys a pool and then they're like, oh, man, I couldn't believe my water bill. Yeah. Uh, That's a lot of water, and it had to be constantly replenished. And the reason is there needed to be cleansing. See, that's one thing that we're going to see that uh, in this temple and the way things were done— uh, and not only that, but also during synagogue worship as well. Cleansing rituals are very prominent because you can't just go anywhere near God without being clean, right? So you need to at least wash the dirt off the outside anyway. We also know from the sacrificial system that you had to be cleansed with blood, and it would be sprinkled on you, okay? Well, guess what? With all these sacrifices— all this cleansing going on before you can even go near God and do, even as the priest, uh, do what you're supposed to do. But then also afterwards, uh, because of the sacrifices and the burning of the sacrifices, you've got blood and uh, ash and silt and all that, and all that had mm. to be uh, cleaned off. Okay, and so that seems to be the functional and religious purpose uh, of all this, okay, and uh, you know we can we can certainly draw some baptismal uh, implications here. Uh, we know that you know think of it this way: if you go, uh, some churches still have baptismal fonts at the entrance to their sanctuaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go back far enough, when they were starting to build uh, baptismal fonts, originally they were outside. So you didn't actually go inside the church until you were cleansed with baptism. Of course, baptism is much a much more significant cleansing. We can say this cleansing with water before they went in to be in the, uh, near the presence of God points us toward what baptism is actually going to be, where Christ actually cleanses us. And even though it's water in baptism, it's actually the blood of Christ. You know, we have the white baptismal gowns, and we remember... Uh, revelation. Who are those in the white robes? Those are the ones who have been cleansed, and the, they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Okay, so you have all this combination of the water and the sacrificial blood, and it's literally pointing us to Christ and his sacrifice, his final sacrifice, and what it's going to mean for us. It means entrance into the very presence of God. It means we are cleansed, made righteous, holy, and that we then uh, not only can be in the presence of God, but with the gift of the Holy Spirit, actually have God residing inside of us. How cool is that? And and that's and that's a great thought for the priests. I think this is for the priests to be cleansed before they went in the temple. I mean, how how would they use this exactly? Was it? I mean, I think of a you know a baptismal font. You put your hand in, make the sign of the cross or something. But here <laughs> they would clean. They would clean like the priests or all the people who would go in the temple. Did you did you catch anything on that? Yeah, there was some of that, but also the afterwards, the cleanup. And not only for the people, but for the tools. 
and all that sort of thing. Uh, okay. And there is a actually interesting discussion. Uh, I can't remember which resource I saw on this. Some, you know, one of the coolest books I've got on my shelf is just is from the Ark Encounter. And, you know, somebody who's very scientifically minded but also biblically faithful kind of speculated how they would have made all those animals in the Ark work. Right. And uh, But it's all speculation, and they acknowledge that. Um, some speculate, and probably not rightly so, uh, that there might have been spigots or faucets on this giant thing. Otherwise, how would they even use that? How would they fill it? How would they get the water out? But uh, it seems as though that wasn't the case, and they would actually use uh, the bowls and so forth to fill the smaller uh, containers of water, and then those would be used, uh, and they would actually get in. So the priest at some point would actually get in to make sure he's thoroughly cleansed. Um, and and so forth. So, uh, it probably was quite labor intensive. If you think about them filling and refilling and cleaning those every day with the morning and evening sacrifice. Well, and this is a reminder too, that when they made sacrifices, uh, pastor Kevin Parviz, who's a part of Kai V. Shalom in St. Louis, as a you oh, know yeah. he's he's Jewish and 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 mm-hmm. he he spoke very clearly about burnt offerings that when they would make burnt offerings and it's supposedly you know supposed to be a, a, an aroma pleasing to the Lord he said it might have been pleasing to the Lord but probably was not pleasing to us <laughs> when you'd smell the <laughs> the the sacrifice and so forth and we forget like you said that there was there was ash that there would be blood that they would not be clean when they were done with these sacrifices. We we lose sight of that because we're kind of in a clean setting. I mean, we're we we drink drink the wine, the body, the blood of Christ. But I mean, it's wine and it's in a nice enclosed area. You're all dressed up and all that. But when you're done sacrificing, this was not clean. So this makes a lot of sense that the sea of cast metal was needed, and it needed to be big because it wasn't just for one person. And it would have been something that needed to be continually filled up. So that is a great insight, Pastor Sims. Anything else on the uh, that first part as we look at these verses? Well, there, there's some interesting imagery there, too. Uh, and, uh, and to some extent, some find it to be problematic even. Uh, for example, the 12 oxen holding up the basin. What's up with the oxen? Well, I, me personally, just looking at it originally, I just automatically bypass the fact that they're oxen. I just go to the 12. Well, that makes perfect right. sense. You got the 12 yeah, tribes right. of Israel, right? And mm-hmm. that can also uh, uh, serve as something pointing towards uh, the 12 disciples who are mm-hmm. uh, d- talking about the New Testament era and God's people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that does make sense. On the other hand, uh, it's funny, if you, uh, if you Google or just do a Wikipedia reading on some of, of these things regarding oxen in antiquity and in the Middle East, um, I, I think the, the quote that I remember uh, just sticking in my, in my brain was on Wikipedia, it said, bull worship was common in many cultures. <laughs> mm, right. And you're like, well, wait a second, this is supposed to be a unique people. Okay, well, first of all, they weren't worshiping these bulls. Uh, but, you know, you do kind of, it does kind of take you back to Exodus 32, right? We had something called the golden calf. The golden calf, yeah. And you're like, right. why would they even go there? <laughs> yeah. Why not pick a different animal? Why would you even go there considering the history? But uh, bulls were symbols of strength. 
and the people's strength was in the strength of Yahweh and the fact that he had chosen them to be his 12 tribes. And further, you've got them going in all four directions, reminding us that Yahweh is the God of all the earth, not just the people of Israel, and also whether they might have seen it yet or not, but kind of pointing to our our earlier discussion, the whole purpose of me choosing you, Israel, is so that the entire world can be blessed. So this is going to go out from the four corners all to the entire four corners of the earth. And of course, we can take that pleasing sacrifice of Christ, which, by the way, would not have been pleasing to anybody. Speaking of things that didn't look or smell right. pleasing. Oh, my goodness. The sacrifice yeah. of Christ looked filthy and was not pleasing, and yet it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord, and it was exactly what we needed. And as we're cleansed by it, we're going to go out to the four corners of the world to tell everybody about it so that they, too, can be part of the kingdom of God. Well, you know, and that points us to that great reality of needing to be cleansed, needing a sacrifice, and it all obviously points us back to Christ. Um, so moving on from those verses, that that is wonderful insight. I encourage our our listeners to look more into that on, like you said, even Wikipedia. You know, I think there's a lot of times we wonder if this is a good source, but it gives you a good source of just small little snippets here and there. Don't don't take it all hook, line, and sinker, but it does give you a few uh, a few gems as we move forward. Other thoughts on the rest of those verses, 27 through 39, that stuck out to you? Well, you just have more of those imageries of, of what I would call the pre-sin Eden. Uh, okay, yeah. Prop, you know, Isaiah, for example, prophesies of the Messianic age. Uh, and the final day, it's going to be either taking us back to Eden before Adam and Eve sin, or be a new Eden, Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 65. Uh, you've got those lions. You've got the Lion of Judah in Genesis 49 and Amos 3, Revelation 5. Okay, So all of these things are significant, and they all point us to the Messianic age, the promise of a new day, and uh, perfection and holiness once again in the presence of God, which was the purpose of the temple at this point anyway, uh, because of what God's going to do through this people. It is interesting how often four is used in these verses as well. Like you said, the four corners of the earth. What, what, what? Describe that language to us a little bit, just to make sure we're on the same page. When you say the four corners of the earth, uh, the earth isn't a square, Pastor Sims. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, the four corners, uh, all directions: north, south, east, west. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, and one of the things that I, I find interesting, but I also maybe it was one of the reasons why I wasn't all that interested in learning about the temple, is a, a text that just sticks out in my mind, <clears throat> is when David says, hey, I've got this great idea. I'm in this really cool, lavish house, a mansion, and God's in a tent. I'm going to make a big temple for him. And even Nathan is like, oh, that's a great idea. And then God says, eh, wait a second. <laughs> that is, wait a second. When have I ever asked you to enclose me in something like a temple? Mm-hmm. I am the God of the entire world and the entire universe. And you're going to shut me up in some temple. Now, it's interesting that he allows for it, even though he rightly corrects 
David and Nathan and our way of thinking when it comes to God. And, uh, and yet he allows it. And I think when we look at all this imagery, just my own personal uh, take, and I hope it's a faithful one, Lord have mercy, is that he allows for it so that he indeed can point us back to how the new Eden is going to come in Jesus Christ mm-hmm. and what he's going to do through his sacrifice and how we will be in God's presence once again without fear of punishment because of who Jesus is. And it's going to be sent to all the four corners of the earth, north, south, east, west, all the world, as we know from, from the Great Commission and on. And this, it all points us to this understanding of what heaven will be. Um, you know, some as simple as you have the palm branches, you know, the palm trees that are mentioned here, the lion and the lamb. One of the situations at our congregations, we have a guy uh, who who is very good at, at carving wood and he puts wood together and he has one of, of Jesus and a lion and a lamb on it. And it's just a, just a nice little something you can put on your wall. Well, we put it up and now that has been uh, basically the place where we'll put a casket which I found very oh, fascinating, wow. you know. And uh-huh. so you put that right by the casket um, when we have a visitation, and there it is. And you just it's a symbol of, of peace that the lion and the lamb are going to be uh, pointing to, to that hope that people have when there is a death. And so that's just been one of those little things that I see all over the place here. Palm trees, cherubim, lions, pointing us to that not only now we have hope, but obviously in the resurrection that we'll have that same hope with our Lord Jesus. Any other thoughts before Indeed. we move on to the last verses? No, go for it. All right. So we have about eight minutes left to go through these last 11 verses. Verse 40. Hiram also made the pots, the shovels, and the basins. So Hiram finished all the work that he did for King Solomon on the house of the Lord. And the two pillars, the two bowls of the capitals that were on the top of the pillars, and the two lattice works to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on top of the pillars. And for 400 pomegranates and two lattice works, two rows of pomegranates and each lattice work. To cover the bowls of the capitals were on the pillars, the ten stands and the ten basins on the stands, and the one sea and the twelve oxen underneath the sea. Now the pots, the shovels, the shovels, excuse me, and the basins, all these vessels in the house of the Lord, which Hiram made for King Solomon, were burnished bronze. In the plain of the Jordan, the king cast them in the clay ground between Succoth and Zarathon. And Solomon left all the vessels unweighed, because there were so many of them, the weight of the bronze was not ascertained. So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table, the bread of the presence, the lampstands of gold, five of the south side, five of the north before the inner sanctuary, the flowers and lamps and the tongues of gold, the cups, the snuffers, basins, dishes for incense, and the firepans of pure gold, and the sockets of gold, for the doors of the innermost part of the house, the most holy place of the doors of the nave of the temple." Thus all the work that King Solomon did to the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in all the things David his father had dedicated, the silver, the gold, the vessels, and stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. So bronze to gold um, is one of the, <laughs> the realities here as well. And also he says it is all done. It is finished, if you will. So what reflections do you have on those verses? 
Ah, uh, yeah. I, I, the fact that you noticed uh, the bronze to the gold mm-hmm. in the very presence of God. Uh, well, that that it's it's special, and it should look and be different, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, some people even make note that there's an antiseptic quality, a cleansing quality, if you will, to gold. Okay, gold. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, and so uh, everything inside now is going to project a hidden yet very powerful reality, and that is the very presence of the one true God. So everything, literally everything is covered in gold. Even the tools, instead of being bronze now, are, are made with gold. Either, either they're, and, you know, gold can be awfully soft, so it might have been covered in gold, something like that. But mm-hmm. even the... Uh, even some of the tools, we're told here, the cups, the snuffers, the dishes for incense, and, and that sort of thing, even tongs, okay? Uh, and they've got gold on them, okay? And that just was supposed to project the very idea that you are in the presence of God now. And uh, there's a purity, a brilliance, a perfection there, okay? And this came to represent the presence of God. Now, think of this, fast-forwarding, in terms of the Magi coming to visit. We often uh, assign, you know, gold was a a gift fitting for a king. Sure. And that's why Jesus received uh, gold from from the Magi. Yeah, okay. And whether, you know, all of this stuff, whether the Magi actually knew this or yet not yet, we don't necessarily know, but that doesn't mean there isn't significance there. God has used people unknowingly <laughs> to right. to, uh, to uh, send a message many, many, many times. And, uh, and so even this idea then he's given gold, the very presence of God, indeed. That's exactly who it, those magi found in the house in Bethlehem. They were in the very presence of God. Here's some gold. <laughs> All right. And uh, and so yeah. and then you've got the other things to do with other aspects of it, too, uh, incense and, and myrrh and so forth. And so everything's covered in gold. It's just portraying the brilliance. It would have been an awe-striking scene, okay? And it was really supposed to convey God is here. Because guess what? He was, actually, just mm-hmm. behind that curtain, right? Uh, and... Uh, and so uh, that's the significance of it. When you're outside looking in, hey, great. When you get in there, you see everything covered in gold and all that brilliance. That's because you're entering God's place. Hmm. Okay. And how does that fit? So we have about two minutes left here, Pastor. As we see the intricate details and we see the beauty of gold and bronze and the um, details when it comes to naming, uh, the details of, of showing uh, what heaven will be like, how does that relate today as we go? Um, how, does it, how does it go for, uh, for worship today? How does that relate to our worship life in our, in our culture? Well, you know, Jesus promises wherever two or three are gathered in my name— there I'm there. So do you have to gather in a fancy sanctuary uh, to actually worship? Not necessarily. But I think one thing for us to take into consideration as very important is if we do set up places of worship, what do those places project? What do they communicate? 
do they communicate, ah, nothing real special happening here? Or hmm. do they communicate there is something very special happening here? And that has to do with all the ecclesial art, the altar, all that stuff. I'll never forget a guy by the name of Ken Noll, where I was at in Milwaukee. He always told me he loved coming to church and the doors would be propped open and he'd look and he'd see Jesus above the altar welcoming, welcoming him to church. Mm. Uh, the bread of the presence was there in the sanctuary of the temple. When we come and we gather around word and sacrament, everything may not be covered in gold, uh, <laughs> and yet we are in the very presence of Jesus Christ as he comes to us in word and sacrament to give us forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. Is there anything special going on in our sanctuaries when we worship? Oh, man, it's the special thing, uh, the most special thing that we'll receive and or experience this side of Christ coming back. So, Pastor Tim Sims from St. John Lutheran Church in Chester, Illinois, strengthening us with God's Word. Pastor Sims, thank you for being our guest. Thank you, brother. It was a privilege. Saints of our Lord, whatever we build or place in our churches, and I would say even in our homes, may it point us back to Christ. Point us back to our Lord because we are surrounded by so many distractions. And after all, the author of the Hebrews says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on hearts and minds on you. I'm your host, Brady Finneran, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. And may he keep you safe in the palm of his hands.